Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. I don't use the word carnage with great frequency, but I gotta say, what has occurred up in Moscow, Idaho is beyond belief that you've got four college students that were at various stages in their college career. They were living life. They were achieving those goals and they were about to crest that hill into full on adulthood, but their life, their lives ended at the hands of what can only be described as a monster. Today, we're going to talk about a quadruple homicide by sharp force injury. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. I'm so glad to have with me today my friend Jackie Howard. Jackie, I I don't know what to say. I, I really don't. I'm a college professor. When this happened, when when this event occurred, I, all I could do was think about my students. I, I'm I've been having a hard time dealing with this as a professor all week long, thinking about my kids at my school. I'm thinking about my child right now. One of my children's in college, and I, I can only imagine the parents of these poor poor kids what they're going through. Like my students right now, I'm I'm away. I'm away from class, and I felt as though that Jackie, you and I need to have a chat as soon as we possibly could about this case. Well, we both did indeed plan some time off, but you're right. This was really important to address what is going on because there's so much to discuss. So before we even get inside and talk about the tremendous, horrendous scene that officers found, Let's talk about the outside scene, and here's why I want to start there. There's been a lot of criticism of the police, because when you look at the photos of all the police cars at the home, they are right up on the scene. The tape is not there yet, but there's cop cars everywhere. And I've learned from you that you have to cordon off the scene because you don't know what information that you're damaging, what evidence that you're damaging. But the fact of the matter is, Joe, that when these four individuals were found by a friend, at first the police didn't know what they were walking into because they were responding to a call for an unresponsive individual. So they had no idea that they were looking at a crime scene. Yeah, and let's face it, this is a small town. And I I don't mean that in a disrespecting way. That's a great thing. I love small towns. I live in a small town. But when the college kids aren't there, there's a very tiny population there that occupies the space. And so uh, an event like this, who, who would even anticipate that something like this would happen in this little town? Nobody would. You know, it's a reminder that this kind of evil can be visited on anybody's doorstep, anywhere, at any time. And right now they're they're fully aware of it. When when they rolled up, when the police rolled up, they they thought that they were coming out to an individual that had been found unresponsive or unconscious. We're still not sure at this moment in time about the exact verbiage 
in this case. But we do know that when the police entered that residence, they found something that was just just mind-blowing. As you go into a scene as a death investigator, it's one thing because you, you kind of know how the uniform officers that are there. And they're saying, okay, this is what we saw when we walked into the residence. So you're kind of prepared for it as a as an investigator. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about the uniform response personnel. When they show up, they're the ones that are actually discovering these issues. They're the ones that are actually discovering what's going on. They don't know what they're walking into. And this would have been a chaotic environment because they don't understand and I can only imagine the traffic on the radio at that point in time. They're saying, oh, oh no, we, we've got multiple people down at the scene. And so the area is going to be flooded with cars, responding vehicles, uniform beat officers. You've got locals that are showing up. You've probably got the sheriff's office that's showing up. You might even have campus police that are rolling over to this location. So that's one of the reasons you see all of those cars there. And you know, Jackie, you're right. I mean, you have to... You have to set things up so that it is secure. Remember this, and this is kind of the watch the watch phrase that I use. You can always contract a scene. That means you can always draw it in, but you have to set that perimeter up out as far away from where the actual crime or the event took place and set that perimeter up so that as time goes by, if you need to try to draw it in and contract it, the problem is, is that if you start off small and you set up tape immediately adjacent to where the event happened, then all of the peripheral area that's out there that probably should be part of the crime scene winds up being contaminated. And you can't justify that in a courtroom. So you set it up big and then you contract it. And that's not what happened, apparently. The supposition is that the front door was not necessarily the entry point because there are sliding glass doors around the side of the house. And many people believe that that could have been the entryway. How many of us that have sliding glass doors, you know, when you go to actuate a lock, that is, you turn a lock on a doorknob, that's something that you physically do. I think that we associate that with with a doorknob where you have a center turn on the doorknob, or if you have an adjacent deadlock where you take it and you turn it and it drops into place. That's something that you, you kind of think about, but with sliding glass doors, there's many times where people forget to actually go behind and lock. And we're talking about college kids here. Not that that's necessarily a justification for it, but there's a lot of traffic in and out of this area. The place is known, the residence is actually known as a place where kids gather. And and why not? It's it's kind of a cool home. It's off campus. You enter actually kind of the living space, what I think most people would kind of term as kind of a family area where there's a TV and all of the kind of a commons area. And that is a big open space that leads into the kitchen. And so all of this can be seen. You can see a big bank of windows, all of that sort of thing. And that is directly accessed by the sliding glass doors. The area that actually that people keep talking about with a keypad, that's down below, okay? That's down below. It's in the parking area, which is really, some people call it the front, some people call it the back, but it's, it's right where cars can pull up. And it has an access keypad where if you know the number, you can punch it in and the door lock deactivates, you can open the door. 
Some of the things that we're hearing is that a lot of people knew what that code was to get into that door. And that's troubling on one level as well. Two points of entry only. That narrows down what the police investigators have to look at. The entry point. You're talking about this bank of windows. What does that tell you? What opportunity does that give a perpetrator? And have we heard anything about any windows being jimmied or anything like that so far? I haven't heard anything about windows being jimmied. And a matter of fact, I haven't heard anything about forced entry either. And you know, you and I talk so much, Jackie, that we begin to talk about these things. That's one of the things we look for, forced entry. You now, is anything crushed in, broken, signs that the, the door has been pried in some way or somebody tried to kick the hinges off, if you will. There's no evidence of that to this point. But the curious thing about this is that when you look at that entrance where the big windows are, the sliding glass doors, there's kind of a, I don't want to call it a plane, but there's kind of a, a lot. The lot kind of, kind of increases in elevation slightly, it looks like, as it rises to the rear of the back of the lot. And there's a wood line over to the left. It would have been a perfect location for somebody that had targeted this home to be able to stand back there in the dead of night because they believe this happened under cover of darkness and be able to see into those windows from that perspective. And the people inside the house, they, they wouldn't have known. They would not have known that anyone was out there because what do you do at night? Well, you're not bumping around in the dark. You're going to have your interior lights on. And guess what happens? When you turn interior lights on in a house and it's dark outside, you can't see anything outside. If you want to be able to see as best you can in the dark, you have to turn off your internal lights and you can generally get a better view out the window, but it's still going to be diminished because there's no ambient light from the sun. Now, if there's a full moon, you might be able to see a little bit, but still even that's compromised. And you know, I think that probably investigators are looking at that. They'll be looking at a couple of things. What kind of man-made light sources are there? Were there any kind of floodlights on the outside of the house? Were there any visible street lights where you could see from that perspective? Was there a place adjacent in that wood line that's going to be, as you're looking out the window in the house over to the left, is there any place that appears to have been trampled down where somebody had been standing there for a while, kind of stomping down the vegetation around there? Maybe they had left something behind as they were watching in the middle of the night, seeing through the windows. And so once that light goes off inside the house, and it's, you know, in the early morning hours, they know they're free and clear. They can walk on through that, that sliding glass door. Maybe the door was left unlocked. Who knows? I'm thinking back to my career right now and there's a moment, Tom, when you're walking up to a house where just total mayhem has ensued. You've been told that it is. And you're outside of that home and you're looking at the exterior of it and nothing seems in disarray. Nothing seems in disorder. But when you finally walk through that door, it's like you're walking through a portal to hell. 
And I think that that's probably, based upon what I've heard, I think that's probably what the investigators saw. I think a lot of people are also interested in what the two surviving roommates saw. And a lot of people are asking questions about the two roommates who survived. We know they came in around one o'clock and uh, the other victims also came in around 145. One of the victims was on the phone with her boyfriend uh, or talking, making calls rather to her boyfriend between 2.30 and 3, 2.30 and like 2.52. And two of the victims were seen at a bar earlier. Two of the victims went to a fraternity party. A couple of them also went to the food truck. The victims were distributed among the second and third floor. Their surviving roommates were on the first floor. This appears to be a split level. So it's possible that whoever came in to do this did not know that the other victims were in the lower level. So when the perpetrator comes in, we don't know yet who was stabbed first. And stabbed is the prerogative word because that is what we are learning from the coroner and from the police. We heard early on that this was an edged weapon. We've heard a kind of couple of things about this weapon. Let's kind of start with that. It had put forth that the investigators, the authorities were looking for what they termed as a military style knife. I even heard somebody say that they were looking for a Rambo style knife. Well, a Rambo style knife is is what's referred to as a survival knife. It's generally got a very long blade on it. There's a saw generally on the on the spine of the blade. That is the blunted side of the blade, the single edge blade. With a survival knife, you've got a, a cap on the on the handle of it that's generally got a compass on it. There's stuff that you can store in there like waterproof matches and all that. And it has a hilt. But then something new came to light. I started hearing the term K-bar. Well, K-bar is a knife that our Marines have used since World War II, essentially. I, I might be wrong. I think it came about in World War II or just prior to World War II. It's got a handle on it that was originally textured with leather that is really roughed up. And this thing is very durable. And kind of like what's referred to as a survival knife, the, the Marines carry this knife because the blade is very robust. It's single-edged. And on the back side of it, there is there are rather saw teeth so that you can flip it over and use it to saw down small saplings with to to use out in the bush and that sort of thing. And it's it's perfect, at least for the Marines, for hand-to-hand -hand combat using edged weapons. You can buy them pretty much nowadays anywhere. You can go online and buy K-bars, all this sort of thing. But I found it interesting they were saying K-bar. The dimensions of it are very specific. And when the investigators would have been looking at these injuries, if they could see them, because many times when you have scenes, and you have stab wounds, you can't make heads or tails of what you have. You just know you have a lot of blood. And by the time the investigators would have made it to the scene, the blood would have begun to dry. So it's going to be kind of obscuring any of these injuries that may have occurred. So that term K-bar may have arisen after the bodies had been cleaned and examined. It's hard to say at this point. 
But what I do know is that a K-bar has what's called a hilt on it, which is the guard that separates the handle from the blade. And I'll be very interested to try to find this out, Jackie. When you take a knife that has this hilt guard on it and you drive it in to a subject, you can sustain what are referred to as hilt injuries. And just imagine the blade kind of passing through the tissue, down into the tissue, and then the hilt itself, this guard, creates a contusion. And it'll be almost rectangular in shape, and it's associated with the stab wound. So you'll have this thing kind of stamped and superimposed on top of the stab wound. It's kind of a complex injury when you begin to think about it. And that would give them an idea of what kind of blade they were looking for because there are knives out there if you pick up a like a butcher knife in the kitchen it doesn't have a hilt guard on it okay something that's blunted like that that can create a contusion it's just the blade essentially disappears into the handle all right but with this it's something totally different so i'd have to ask that question why are they saying that this is a military style knife they say rambo style knife they say k-bar so that's very specific, very specific information. That's the first thing that we would think about relative to these injuries. And it would be a specific type of person, I think, that would own one of these. A person that obviously would feel comfortable with a knife, such as this, a military-style knife. Maybe they know how to use it. They certainly knew how to use it on this night because they robbed these four young people of their lives with it, assuming that they used this weapon over and over and over and over again. What I find interesting is the fact that in using this style of weapon, it tells me that it probably was a targeted attack because somebody had to bring that weapon with them. You are absolutely spot on the money. This is not something, though they could have, this is not something that I would expect these college kids to have laying around the house. You know, the male that was there was there visiting. He was not a permanent resident. Okay. So someone telling me that these college women that lived in this house possessed a military style knife, you're going to have to sell that to me. I'm not buying it. I think that whoever showed up, showed up prepared. And again, like we talk about, this goes to this element of premeditation. You're prepared to do your worst when you show up. You're prepared to take somebody's life. That means that you brought a deadly weapon into the home of these college women. Why in the world you would show up to their home with a military-style knife? I have no idea other than to do great harm. And, of course, they wound up doing that. They brought it with them. Many times when you work domestic cases in particular, when you have individuals that are having disagreements in a familial setting, that sort of thing, you'll I've walked into kitchens before where... You'll see the drawers all pulled out, right? And you can tell that someone was in a fever looking for something to do harm to somebody with. And you'll see, I've seen drawers of silverware just dumped out on the floor. I've seen people use butter knives and cheap steak knives. I've seen people use fillet knives. I've seen people use butchering knives, a variety of different things, whatever. And those are what we refer to in forensics and in investigations as weapons of convenience. That means that they're within arm's reach. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a weapon that, if it is a military-style weapon, that is 
created for the express purpose of killing. That's what this weapon is for. Make no bones about it. All right. And so it it was used by an individual, I think, that felt very comfortable with it, may have had some skill with it, has probably been carrying it around. And I've heard somebody mention this along the way, and I find this quite interesting. The fact that I don't believe that this is a weapon that they would have thrown away after they used it because they feel comfortable with it. Carpenter uses a particular type of hammer to do their job with. Musician uses a guitar they like. Well, this person is a vicious, homicidal maniac. This is something, this instrumentality of death that they have, that they have chosen, that they like to use, and they're not going to separate themselves from it. What would you find... Given that we have four victims stabbed, somebody had to be the first. How do we tell, and what are we going to find on the other victims? Sequencing is something that's going to be, I think, very important here as this case continues to be investigated and and examined and processed. Okay, And that's a question that a lot of people want to know. Because therein, if you, if you have one of the four victims in this case that was the target it would be very important to try to understand who sustained the most injuries because you would think that the targeted individual would be that individual that would have possibly sustained the most trauma other than maybe somebody that fought back now how do you sequence this event and when we're talking about sequence we're talking about the order of death i'm not talking about like the sequencing of the injuries on an individual because contrary to what people think, that's not something that we can do. Even the most highly skilled forensic pathologist that gets on the stand and testifies, they will always have this disclosure. They'll say like, if I've got 12 injuries on a body in their report, they'll say, please note, the number of these injuries is merely a number. It's an identifier. It does not in any way imply the sequence in which these injuries were administered. Now, we can tell postmortem and antemortem many times something will have hemorrhage and something won't. But here what we're talking about with the sequencing of the deaths of these young people is we're trying to determine who was stabbed first. You know, I heard the DA actually make a statement as they're interviewing this gentleman as he's walking away from the scene. He actually went on this, on this and I'm paraphrasing here, but he was like, I, I, I don't know that I could, you know, really begin to describe what's what happened in there. It, it's horrible, absolutely horrible. There's going to be a lot of blood, a tremendous amount of blood at this scene. Whoever did this is going to be, would have been covered in blood. It will be from four separate people, and that's the key to trying to figure this out from a scientific standpoint. We talk a lot about DNA, and we talk a lot about blood typing, this sort of thing on body bags, but this is very important in this case because, in my estimation at least, whoever was attacked first in this case will have possibly none of the other victims' DNA on them, or their their blood will not be commingled 
with the other victims. And this is just, it's, we're merely applying logic here. So as the progression takes place, say you have victim A, and we don't know who victim A is, they're attacked, they're killed. Well, going back to the knife, we assume that that same knife is the same instrument that is being used in all of these deaths. Once that knife is withdrawn from this first victim, the next victim is attacked. Now, the DNA, the blood sample, if you will, from the first victim will be introduced into the space of the second victim. And for lack of a better term, that second victim will literally be inoculated with the blood of the other person. And this progresses so that you get this kind of increasing event of commingling of biological material where you'll have victim A's DNA on victim B. And then with victim C, you'll find A and B, perhaps, on C. And then on D, you'll find all of the three. Dependent upon how well this trace evidence is collected and how detailed the testing is, how thorough the testing is. And it, it will take some time. People want quick answers when it comes to DNA, and they can turn it around pretty quickly. However, when you have this commingling of the DNA, it's a bit more of a technical undertaking. You have to have the right skill set in order to facilitate this, to try to separate out these various types, these various blood types, and try to harvest DNA from these locations. There are many times on scenes when you, you walk into this environment and it is total chaos. But as an investigator, as a forensic scientist, that's why you get paid. It's your job to make sense of the chaos. It has to be dug out from either those that you're interviewing, those observations that you're making, or even the scientific tests that you're running. It takes time. This is not an instant cake mix. This is something that takes time, it takes dedication, and it takes precision. Well, making sense out of chaos is exactly what you're doing, because I am trying to imagine as a crime scene investigator coming in and having a body that has, I don't know, let's just say four stab wounds. And this would be, let's say it's our third victim. And you're talking about, you mentioned a minute ago, about the co-mingling of blood. But how does that work if the two upper stab wounds were first? Are you still going to get somebody else's DNA or blood in the third wound? And how much blood does it take to be able to prove that there was commingling? I mean, it doesn't automatically, if you have, I don't know, four tablespoons of blood and you have one drop, is it going to show up in all four tablespoons? Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, it is mind-boggling. And listen, there's no guarantee with it. I'm being hopeful when I say that. I mean, I truly am being hopeful because it is such a mess. It's one thing to find commingled blood stains, okay, or or blood sample. Is it going to be so cross-contaminated, though, that 
it'll be ruined where they're not able to separate it out sufficiently in order to, well, certainly do DNA on it. With the commingling of the blood, we've got our our ABO groups, and then we have to determine relative to the antigen if it's positive or negative. So if you have AB pause or AB neg or O pause or O neg, B neg, B pause, O neg, O pause, you're going to have all of these blood samples that could potentially be mixed. It, it, but when you're talking about a, a stabbing, multiple stabbing with multiple victims, it's such a dynamic environment. We don't know what the actions of the perpetrator were either. For all we know, this individual may have taken a knife blade and run it across the area of his pants along the thigh to try to wipe away the blood before he went to the next person and stabbed. For all we know, the knife from one victim was dripping blood. They went over and immediately started attacking the other one and brought about their death. They are going to have a Herculean task to be able to try to separate this out. And it's going to take time in order to do it just to get the groupings right. I think, and to be able to establish DNA is is then that's another part of the task as well. Will it be so cross-contaminated that they might have difficulty? However, the saving grace here, I think, from just a demonstrative standpoint, is that they will be able to perhaps say that there are these grouping or blood groupings present on each of the bodies. And so you can tie that back to one individual, perhaps, that did this, particularly if they can come across that subject's clothes, which are going to be very important in this case, because they'll have, like I said, have been a bloody mess. Did they keep those clothes? Did they burn those clothes? Do they have them hidden back somewhere? Or did they just discard them as they were going down the road? You know, that was another issue, remember, that came up about the garbage. Remember that? They were talking about how there's a chance that they didn't look through the garbage effectively or that it wasn't a sought out route that the trucks may take. And that's key here because, you know, trash trucks have a specific location that they kind of make stops at, pick up the dumpsters, dump them. And then that garbage is taken to a specific location in a landfill. Well, did they miss their target with that? Was that not something that they thought about? Because for all we know, that individual may have dumped their clothes into a dumpster immediately adjacent to that. Hopefully, the knife isn't gone because I still think this person probably held on to it. If that knife is still available, then it's going to have trace amounts. And you can try to clean this thing as best you want to, but they always miss something. And wouldn't that be interesting if you find that knife and this individual still has it with them, and you can find evidence from all four of the victims on that knife, maybe isolated patches of DNA on either the handle or maybe on that hilt guard that we mentioned, because there's all kinds of little nooks and crannies that a lot of people don't think about, that the DNA and the trace evidence people can go in and sample those areas and retrieve that evidence from there. Besides the stab wounds... What other kind of injuries could you expect? The information released by the coroner in the case says that some of the victims, while most were thought to be asleep when the stabbings began, some of the victims had defensive wounds. So we're looking at bruising. We're looking at what? When you have a defensive event, 
first off, that goes to awareness, doesn't it? We're not talking about an individual that was merely stabbed and they died. We're talking about a person who was stabbed and then, oh my gosh, there's an awareness. I'm being injured. They awake and they raise their arm. They lift their arm. And with these defensive injuries, and of course, knife injuries are some of the most horrific things you can see when it comes to defensive events. Most of the time, we have a natural inclination with our arms to block. We'll raise our forearm. Generally, our fist will be balled up. We'll raise our forearm in order to block or maybe sweep, sweep with our hands. Well, lots of times what can happen is that the knife blade, I've had knife blades that have passed through the hands of victims. They held their hand up, they were stabbed through the hand. I've had glancing blows that almost look like a, a shaving of tissue where you'll have these really nasty kind of gashes that take place. And you said something interesting, Jackie, just a second ago when you said bruises. So you, you can get associated contusions as well. Because understand that when a person is wielding a knife, not only can they bring about sharp force injuries, but they can bring about blunt force injuries as well, which are associated with contusions many times because their fist is balled up around this metal object and they'll punch with that in their hands sometime, which makes a very devastating injury. And you'll see that, particularly if an individual is trying to fend them off, they'll punch with a knife in their hand. You can get bruising on an individual. And of course, if the victim is bruised, you'll know that this was an antemortem or prior to death event that occurred while they're in the throes of these fatal events that are going down at that moment. So you'll have all of those kinds of, of events that will happen. I've seen people that have had broken bones as a result of, of defensive injuries, abrasions. You can get those, which are scrapes where they're fending off. And this is very frenetic, you know, a lot of movement with the hands, a lot of twisting and turning, because let's all think about it. Most people don't want to sit back and receive any kind of pain. You want to try to try to shield your body away from it. And so you can get defensive injuries, for instance. If they roll over, you can see a defensive injury on the shoulder. And it's kind of a guard position where you go in and you, you, you tuck, essentially, into almost a fetal position many times. And you'll see these stab wounds that present maybe more on the lateral chest, on the side of the chest. And then if they roll over, of course, they'll be stabbed anteriorly as well. So you'll have this distribution. One interesting thing, though, is I believe that the coroner was asked specifically about these injuries. And if I remember, the reporter had actually asked, was there any slashing the neck or the face? And the coroner said no, that these were essentially concentrated in the chest of these individuals and that some or one of them, not really sure, did in fact have defensive injuries. As the police continue this investigation looking for the perpetrator, they are asking for people to look at their cameras, any surveillance. So what are, I mean, obviously they would love if the guy just walked by and was like, oh, big sign that says I did it. Not going to happen, of course. But what exactly are they looking for? Someone who followed the girls when they went to the food truck? Someone who might have been outside the home? I mean, ring doorbell what else what other kind of surveillance is there i heard somebody actually mention teslas which i don't know a lot about teslas but apparently teslas are filming 
or have cameras on them. I found that kind of interesting. One of the spokespeople had gotten up at one of the pressers. But aside from that, there's something else that we need to mention from a physical standpoint here that folks need to think about. At autopsy, let me tell you what they did with these victims. They did nail scrapings and nail clippings on all of these victims. And remember, we were talking about defensive injuries just a moment ago. One of the things that happens many times with these perpetrators that this is very up close and personal. It's very intimate. And as they're attacking an individual and the victim is trying to fend them off, the victim will scratch these individuals just trying to pinch them or grab hold of their hair. And the perpetrator will actually have injuries to them. And one of the things that people, I think, from my perspective as a forensic science guy, that they people need to be on the lookout for is if you see somebody walking around that has scrapes and scratches along their neck, their jawline, across their face, we're not that many days downrange still. We're just over a week from when this occurred. Those injuries would still be there. So if there's someone in the community that's presenting with those kinds of injuries, I'm not suggesting anybody approach this person, but it's something that should be made note of. If they've seen anybody that came into a drugstore or went to a local box store to pick up medicine or bandages or anything like that, maybe that's what they were doing. They're trying to self-treat themselves to try to prevent this. They might attempt to apply makeup to an area. We've seen serial perpetrators do that before. So that's something that has to be considered. Now, as far as the visual side of things go, the documentation with CCTV, it all depends on what's at their disposal. Many people in these neighborhoods do, in fact, have ring cams that are positioned on their front stoop. I think that people would need to, if they are in proximity to where this event happened, they need to contact the police. Hopefully, during the canvassing process, that's where the investigators go through the neighborhood on foot. They go door to door to door to door. Nowadays, one of the first questions they ask, do you have video surveillance technology here present at your home? Where is it positioned? May we please see those recordings? And they'll go through and canvas that whole area to see if they can pick something up. If they have, for instance, stoplight cams in there with plate readers and all that sort of stuff, they're going to be reviewing that. And that kind of goes back to something we saw imaged the other day on television. There were... Uh, photographs that have been taken of crime scene techs out on the side adjacent road. And there's a, if you're facing the rear of the home, there's a, a little street that runs alongside this house over to the left, I think, as you're looking at the at the parking parking pad in the back of the house. They saw what appeared to be, and they were measuring skid marks on the road where, and they looked fresh. You can see they're kind of dark dark black, fresh appearing, where maybe someone skidded or they burned rubber in that particular area, and they were taking measurements of that. So if the person was not on foot, but they were in a vehicle and they left that area in a rush, might be looking for a specific vehicle. And with the skid marks, there were side by side. So as far as an indicator goes, there's a couple of things they can do. With any rubber that was left behind, they can do a sample of that rubber out of the road 
and perhaps tie that back chemically to whoever manufactured the tires. And they can also get an idea of the wheelbase of a vehicle. You know, if you're driving a big truck, you know, the wheelbase will be wider. Or if you're driving a small car, it's going to be more narrow. So you can get the dimensions of a car. It doesn't mean that those marks in the road are necessarily associated with this event. However, because it's immediately adjacent to the house, all of that has to be taken into consideration. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags.